This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Colon polyps are relatively common in our population and in most cases are easily found and removed, thereby reducing one's risk of developing colorectal cancer. The polyp histology, as well as the number of polyps found, influence the frequency of colorectal cancer screening. But which polyps have a greater tendency to become malignant? How long does it take a polyp to develop into a colon cancer? And how often does colonoscopy miss polyps? These are just some of the topics we'll discuss with today's guest, Dr. John Kissel, our gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. John, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Well, let's start by asking you to review the various types of polyps that one can find when you look in the colon. Yeah, broadly speaking, the major classes of polyps that we find at colonoscopy are going to fall into sort of two separate groups. Those are going to be the adenoma lineage or adenomatous polyps. And then the second group we refer to as the serrated polyps. Of serrated polyps, there are three main variants. The sessile serrated polyp or sessile serrated lesion is the favored term for what we used to call a sessile serrated adenoma. And that distinction is made because the fact that these really don't have adenoma in them. The traditional serrated adenoma, which is a, a lesion with great malignant potential. And then the third class of serrated polyp is the hyperplastic polyp, which probably really does not carry any malignant potential at all. So broadly speaking, adenomatous and serrated. The, the most common of the pre-malignant serrated polyps is the sessile serrated polyp or sessile serrated lesion. And can either type, both hyperplastic, uh, adenomatous, be either flat or pedunculated? Or is there one tendency towards the other? Yeah. So. Raised lesions can be either adenomatous or serrated. What we tend to see is that the uh, pedunculated polyps tend to be found more on the left side of the colon. Those are sort of the traditional polyp on a stalk, and probably that stalk forms as a result of propulsive forces over on the left side of the colon, like in the sigmoid and the rectum, generating sort of traction from the polyp and, and pulling it like a lead point. Mm-hmm. On the right side of the colon, polyps tend to be flatter. The adenomatous polyps on the right side of the colon tend to have a broad base and they may be raised and easily visible, but they don't tend to be on a stalk and therefore they're harder to remove completely. And we also see the sessile serrated lesions primarily on the right side of the colon. And we define right versus left in relationship to proximal or distal to the splenic flexure. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you later about the effectiveness of colonoscopy, but I would imagine that the flat polyps are more difficult to locate. Is that correct? That's definitely the case. So flatter polyps are hard to see. They're also more difficult to be confident in where the edges of those polyps are. So it's easier to leave tissue behind even after an endoscopic polyp removal or polypectomy. And there can be some very subtle clues that can help us pick those polyps up. And that's really a a matter of active scholarly investigation, practice improvement, and practice quality for the GI community and those outside of GI, such as in 
family medicine or surgery that do colonoscopy or flexible sigmoidoscopy is trying to improve our adenoma and sessile serrated lesion detection rates. Talk a little bit about the risk factors for colon polyps. Who is more likely to have them or who is at greater risk to have polyps? Yeah, broadly speaking, the the risk factors for colon polyps are similar to those that have been described for colon cancer. Colon polyps are going to be more common in men than women, but both are affected to a degree significant enough to screen for them. They get more prevalent as we get older, although we now know that the prevalence of colon polyps and advanced colon polyps is probably pretty similar between those age 45 to 50 as it is for those 50 to 54, reflecting a recent change in our screening guidelines. The traditional exposures in the environment, such as tobacco, alcohol, saturated fat, processed foods, those are all risk factors for colon cancer and colon polyps. And then also there are hereditary factors. Those that are well-known like hereditary colon cancer syndromes like Lynch syndrome and FAP. And then it just tends to run in families, likely as a result of multifactorial genetic events or syndromes that we haven't yet fully characterized. So knowing your family history is pretty important, even when Mm -hmm. it comes to polyps. Okay. Now, do all colon cancers originate from polyps? We think so. There's a a matter of debate in at least one or more of the hereditary syndromes. There are patients with Lynch syndrome, for instance, that can have a completely apparently normal colonoscopy one year and then come back with a cancer the next year, which is really frightening. And we don't really know whether that's a result of a, a cancer that just developed from grossly normal tissue in a very rapid time, or whether those patients had a lesion that may have been missed before Mm -hmm. that evolved into a cancer in between screening intervals. Um, The answer is probably the latter in in my personal opinion. Okay. And I would imagine the larger the polyp, the greater likelihood of a malignancy being present. Absolutely. So in addition to polyp size, the severity or degree of dysplastic transformation of the polyp tissue is important. For adenomas, whether uh, there has been a a change in the architecture from tubular to villus architecture, those are also particularly important in terms of our risk stratification of uh, predicting future advanced polyps or cancer. Mm -hmm. And the number of polyps too also plays a role. Sure. I I suspect this is difficult to know, but do you have any idea of how long it takes for a polyp, if it's going to turn malignant, to turn into a malignancy. Yeah, so the classic literature on this that was really illustrated and, and kind of laid out by Bert Vogelstein and others has shown that really one can go from normal colonic tissue all the way to cancer in the span of about 15 to 20 years. And that has a lot to do with the recommended interval for when we wanna bring people back mm-hmm. and how often we would just conduct screening to look for polyps in the first place. We think that that rate of transformation is probably accelerated in individuals that have a hereditary cancer syndrome or who have chronic inflammatory disorders of the colon, for instance, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease that are sort of acting as drivers of that carcinogenesis. And so those patients fall outside of what we would call screening into a different category of more intensive study called surveillance, where those patients are at such a high risk that some of them come back every few years or some even every year. So for the average risk patient, 
who has a negative colonoscopy, we generally tell them to come back in 10 years. Is that adequate? Until we know more, I think, I think it is adequate. What I would say is that for that to apply, that colonoscopy needs to be of really high quality. So mm -hmm. the patient needs to be uh, very well prepped to use different scoring metrics. We're trying to get away from adjectives like excellent and good and fair down to more objective and numerical criteria based segment by segment throughout the colon. So you want to have an adequate bowel prep and we could have a whole conversation about what that means. You want to have that patient seen by an endoscopist who has a high adenoma detection rate. And unfortunately that data for better or worse is, is not publicly available. That's usually used internally for quality control. The exam needs to be complete. So the cecum of the colon needs to be reached and well photographed. That's a common location where, where cancers can get missed. The withdrawal time needs to be adequate. So we have a minimum standard of six minutes of inspection on the way out, but oftentimes it, it takes more time to get a good look. And we often are cleaning and washing the colon on our way out. And we need retroflexed views of the rectum. And ideally now increasingly, a lot of us are doing retroflexed views in the cecum. So looking behind ourselves in the right colon where we traditionally are more likely to miss those flat lesions we talked about earlier. So 10 years in an average risk patient with some conditions attached to it. Correct. So right. it's important to note that if patients are having symptoms or they have a change in their family history, that needs to get reported and updated. Sure. Uh, so we would look more often, for instance, even in a, an individual with no prior polyps, if they had a family history of cancer and a first degree relative, or even a family history of advanced polyps in a first degree relative. Okay. Well, we've sort of touched on the effectiveness of colonoscopy. Is it known how often colonoscopy misses polyps? We don't know. It's suspected that most cancers that occur in between screening intervals were likely as a result of missed polyps. The rate at which we would find a cancer at a colonoscopy is really probably less than 1 in 150 to 1 in 200. We find polyps at least in one out of every four or five colonoscopies. So that's, it's much more common to find polyps than cancers. We know that of all the patients diagnosed with colon cancer, about 10% of them will have had a reportedly normal colonoscopy within the last three to five years. The procedure is very effective, but it's not perfect. And we don't have any medical interventions or procedures that are, but I think we as a GI and screening community need to do better. As I mentioned earlier, there's been a tremendous amount of work looking at quality metrics, looking at ways to improve endoscopy performance. Newer ways that, that we're doing that include artificial intelligence algorithms that alert someone doing a colonoscopy to the, the possibility of the presence of a polyp that they could have overlooked. We don't know yet whether that's going to help us find more cancers and prevent more cancers in the long run. But that is an anticipated outcome of having technology like that implemented in our practice. We also track our endoscopists for many of the features that I, I mentioned earlier, the percentage of cases in which they find a polyp that's tracked, the amount of time they spend withdrawing and inspecting the colon uh, that's tracked. So that's kind of looking indirectly at the quality of the endoscopist, which I imagine must be pretty important, but I don't think we really, we really have, as clinicians, have any way of determining that when we order a colonoscopy, do we? We don't. And so what we, within our practice, have an annual review of those quality metrics internally 
the documentation and those quality statistics are reviewed by a peer who then provides a central committee blinded feedback about exactly you know what needs to be done. If a provider is, does not have a sufficient volume within their practice, they're encouraged to do more. We also have programs where we can teach the endoscopist new tricks by working with a, uh, an individual that has a, a higher level of performance or may have particular skills that could be taught. And what we found is that that type of review and feedback and instruction probably goes a longer way than special bells and whistles and technology can in terms of helping recognize new features uh, in real time and improve our, uh, improve our performance. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that flat polyps are more easily missed than pedunculated polyps. What else determines whether a polyp might be missed or not? Sure. So polyp location plays a big role. We mentioned the right side of the colon where the lesions are flatter and often harder to see. But if a lesion, remember that the colon is a three-dimensional structure with a lot of twists and turns. And so bowel preparation is a a key factor. If the colon's not clean, we're not going to see adequately. Properly insufflating the colon with air to flatten out the haustral folds in order for us to see behind them. Uh, Sometimes if we know that there's a a polyp present, we're going in for a therapeutic procedure to remove that. We might put a clear plastic cap on the end of our scope to actually be able to push some of those folds down and out of the way to give us more visibility when doing therapeutic interventions to really make sure that we're removing polyps completely. Polyps can hide behind not just haustral folds, but they can hide in certain anatomic segments of the colon more easily. The cecum, uh, the top of the colon, especially under the ileocecal valve, is a common location on the, the medial wall of the cecum where we can miss things. It's an area where dirt accumulates. It's also an area where we need to spend more time looking. I mentioned earlier, looking behind ourselves in the right colon to look on the backsides of folds helps. And the flexures, those are also difficult places to spot polyps, the hepatic flexure in particular. And then the sigmoid colon, you know, with all the attention we place now and getting a good inspection on the right side of the colon, the sigmoid colon with its twists and turns contains lots of blind spots. And sufficiently inflating the sigmoid colon can be very uncomfortable for patients as we're putting in a lot of air throughout the whole colon in order to do that. So that is something that needs to be done quickly for patient discomfort, but also comprehensively to make sure we're not missing anything. Mm -hmm. Many of us have had the really alarming experience of thinking we've inspected an area, going back up one more time and seeing something pop out of the corner of the screen that we didn't appreciate on on the first run. So it is a very humbling experience to perform colonoscopy. And like I said, we have very serious attention paid, not only here at Mayo, but also across our profession uh, to making sure that we do as good a job as possible. I would imagine the size plays a big role too. And obviously larger polyps would be easier to find than smaller ones. What size polyp do you think is the smallest that endoscopists can usually detect? Yeah, we can see polyps that are just a few millimeters across. And so that can be a frustrating experience. If we have lots of little ones, you have to commit to how many you're going to remove in a single session. In terms of a a real threshold for risk for continued progression towards malignancy, generally the size cutoff of a centimeter or greater in size has been shown to be uh, an independent risk factor for uh, finding advanced neoplasia and future colonoscopies. And we mentioned earlier that, you know, the more polyps one has at a single setting, and even the more polyps one has cumulatively will raise risk. We're recognizing that 
that there are many patients out there that have an apparent not otherwise specified polyposis. You know, we're finding 10 or more polyps in a single setting, or finding 10 to 20 polyps lifetime. We're actually increasingly referring those patients to our clinical genomics practice. There's a, about a 5% or more likelihood that those patients will harbor a hereditary syndrome that places them at increased risk, not only for colon cancer, but also for cancers and other organs that we can surveil for and prevent. Mm -hmm. Well, I know this podcast is primarily on colon polyps, but I want to ask this question because it's relatively related and there's been a change recently in the recommendations and that involves when we should start our initial colon cancer screening at various, what age should that be now? Correct. So the recent guideline, which was uh, issued by United States Preventive Services Task Force last year, indicated that we should start screening at age 45 in patients that are apparently at average risk. That is the latest recommendation and kind of a saga change that initiated from the American Cancer Society as far back as 2018. And the way that they got to that recommendation involved several key observations. So it's not at this point in the randomized controlled trial level of evidence, but observational data suggests that the advanced polyps that we've been, that we really, those are the ones we really want to find most and remove those to prevent cancer. Those appear to be equally as common in individuals age 45 to 49 as they are in individuals age 50 to 54. So there's nothing magical about the number 50. Second, it's been shown that we can significantly improve quality adjusted life years and colon cancer related events and deaths by initiating screening uh, five years earlier. There continue to be naysayers of this practice. Could the money spent on starting screening earlier be better spent if we got more people over the age of 50 to adhere to screening guidelines? Possibly. We also know that there are significant racial and socioeconomic disparities that exist for colorectal cancer screening. Would the resources be better spent eliminating those barriers? Possibly. But I view it as a both and. I think we need to do all of these things in order to prevent colorectal cancer, which is still the most preventable, but least prevented malignancy in the United States and still the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths among men and women combined. Okay. Can you talk just a little bit about when we can safely discontinue colorectal cancer screening? It's a, an interesting and controversial topic around which there is not a whole lot of guidance. USPSTF is pretty clear that conducting screening in individuals over the age of 75 needs to be done with extreme caution. And so they give that a, uh, a grade C recommendation. There is some evidence that certain individuals may benefit, but they need to really have at least 10 or more high quality life years remaining and need to be relatively free from other significant medical comorbidities. So when we see these patients in our practice, you know, we're kind of often asking about comorbid heart or lung or kidney disease, cognitive diseases to really, you know, say that it's worth putting the patient through an mm -hmm. invasive procedure. As people get older, the number needed to harm starts to outpace the number needed to screen. And so we just have to be cognizant of that. I would say if you have a patient who's over age 75 and they've never had any screening before and, they've, and they have outstanding quality of life and overall health, it would be reasonable to consider initiating screening. But really after age 85, there's, mm -hmm. there's really no role to start at that point. And many patients could consider stopping in the face of other illnesses. I think that's a, a topic in which we really need to actually empower our 
primary care community. And, you know, I think oftentimes what I hear from providers is that if we're conducting ongoing screening or conducting ongoing surveillance for polyps, if I put in my endoscopy note that the patient has to come back for another surveillance exam in three to five years, providers often feel as though they're kind of trapped in mm-hmm. that not doing so would be in some ways malpractice. And so if when I'm seeing patients that where it's getting increasingly, I think, riskier to screen them as they're getting older or conduct surveillance, I'll often say, I think there needs to be a discussion with primary care about the ongoing risks of screening and surveillance for colon cancer in these patients. And I think the same thing goes for non-invasive tests. So with the availability of Cologuard and FIT, mm-hmm. CT colonography, many times I think patients and providers are saying, well, I don't think this patient's well enough for a colonoscopy. Let's get the non-invasive test. And if it's negative, we'll move on. Well, what do you do when that test is positive? Right. Now you're kind of committed to doing an invasive test that you didn't think the patient was a good fit for in the first place. So I would say if you the patient's too sick for colonoscopy, they're probably too sick for screening and surveillance for colon cancer and, and resources and attention need to be placed elsewhere. Yeah. The challenging ones are the older patient who has had multiple polyps found on their colon cancer screening, and now they are getting multiple chronic diseases, advanced age. You know, we're not really good at determining how much life a patient has left, but those are always challenging to try to figure out when to stop in those patients. Absolutely. And patients often feel as though they're being abandoned when you start to initiate that conversation. So I usually start that conversation with patients well ahead of the time when they are really clearly not going to be fit. And it's a, an iterative process that we kind of review each time they come back. And, and uh, you know, we have a large cohort in my practice here of people that, that are going to require ongoing surveillance for polyps. And you want to plant that seed well ahead of the time when you need to pull the trigger on a, a, on a definitive uh, decision. Yeah, I, I can only think of two of my patients over 40 years who have had a perforated colon at colonoscopy, and both of those were definitely in their advanced ages. Well, John, let me ask you to uh, summarize our discussion, maybe with two or three key points related to colon polyps. Yeah, so I think it's important for everyone to know that colon polyps are essentially asymptomatic. They are really the target for colon cancer screening. We really want to find advanced precursor polyps and early stage cancers and not rely on symptoms to screen patients. The change in the guidelines to initiate screening, again, to try to remove those advanced adenomas, even from young patients now, start the screening at age 45. When we find polyps, our uh, guidelines for follow-up of those lesions has also recently changed. We've updated the Ask Mayo Expert content to align with the 2021 Multi-Society Task Force Guidelines on Surveillance After Polypectomy. And in general, those guidelines are getting less aggressive for patients with lower risk polyps. So if you have small polyps, one or two adenomas, that that patient may really resemble an average risk person with respect to their um, continued surveillance needs. And so that interval has now gotten longer, but we've gotten more aggressive with the patients that have higher risk polyps, including those who have uh, uh, supernumerary polyps or the the highest risk features like high-grade dysplasia, traditional serrated adenoma, et cetera. So it's good to be familiar with those. I usually don't rely on memory for them. I look them up, even though I do this day in and day out. It's uh, better to double check than be uh, be sorry. Well, we've been discussing colon polyps with Dr. John Kissel, a gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. John, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's it's always a pleasure having you as a guest. Oh, thanks so much for having me and for the 
the great questions on a topic near and dear to my heart. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.